You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, Galatians chapter 2. I want you to turn there as, as we are... Looking at Galatians chapter 2, I'll begin this way. You've heard of the, the phrase, um, uh, to draw a line in the sand. Uh, it usually means when you draw a line in the sand, there's a point of no return. I mean, you've drawn a line in the sand, you've, you've staked your deal, um, a decision's made, uh, you, you, it's, it's, it's irreversible. You said, hey, listen, I've drawn the line in the sand, I can't go back. Uh, you, you, you've staked your claim on something. Uh, Mark Kirkendall this week looked it up, and he said it's hard to find the origin. Some people think the origin actually goes back to a famous scene in the Alamo. William Travis, he's uh, got all his men there at the Alamo, receives a letter from Santa Anna, and he tries, uh, Santa Anna says, hey, listen, uh, you got to surrender. So you don't want to surrender. He seeks to inspire his men, and so he takes a, a stick, and he draws literally a line in the dirt, line in the sand, and he says, all those that are with me, you know, step across the line. Be, be with me on the side of the line. And everybody does. This is a really, you know, moving moment. And so the response he sends back to Santa Anna on will we uh, retreat or will we surrender is a cannon shot. Uh, it's really great. Of course, you know how the Alamo ends, but anyways. I mean, well, Texas is independent, so that, you know, lose the battle, win the war, right, Scott? So, But 500 years ago, there's a more inspiring line in the sand. Uh, October 31st, um, 1517, Martin Luther. I've told you about it, but it's, it's, the, it's German professor, Monk, Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, Luther, so he's, you know, he's, this, uh, he's come to reject uh, the teachings, several teachings and practices of the Catholic Church. And he strongly, of those, he strongly disputed the understanding of the Catholic view of indulgences. And that was that you could purchase freedom from God's punishment for sin. You could purchase that freedom from sin with money. So on an October evening, he sits down, he writes a letter to the bishop, Albert of Mainz, and he, and he nails that letter to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and the letter is often referred to as the 95 Theses. Well, word travels to, from Germany to, to the Vatican, it gets to the Pope, and on June 15th of 1520, the Pope warned Luther, that if he did not recant the letter, if he did not recant that letter and his teachings and his writings, that he would be excommunicated from the church. A line was being drawn in the sand. Well, almost a year later, April 18th, 1521, Luther's ordered to appear before a council. The council's called the Diet of Worms. Now, if you say it with a German accent, it sounds a little better than that. The room's packed. Luther shows up. Everybody wants to know what Luther's going to do. Luther says, can I have the night to pray about it? And so they grant it. Goes and he prays, wrestles in prayer, shows up the next day. 
Room's packed. Everyone wants to know what his answer is going to be. The room gets silent, and then Luther speaks these famous words. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. And that was the moment in earnest that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Luther would later write, in short, we can stand the loss of our possessions, the loss of our name, the loss of our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, of our faith, or of Jesus Christ. And that is that. Because Luther knew that not everything's worth fighting for, but there are some things there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that we have to draw a line in the sand about. And in Galatians chapter 2, what we see is that Paul is drawing a line in the sand. You know, Paul, I don't want you to think Paul draws a line in the sand about everything. I mean, Paul's the guy that's going to say, listen, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek, I mean. But Paul was happy to let lots of things go for the sake of the gospel. But when it came to the gospel, he had to draw a line in the sand. He, that's what he was fighting for. For the truth of the gospel, Paul would not budge. And that's what's going on here in Galatians chapter 2. In fact, the passage, it actually goes from 2.1 to 2.14 is what we'll look at over the next two weeks. I was supposed to get to verse 10, um, but I didn't the first hour. I'm real unhopeful that I'll get to it this hour, okay? But I'll, I'll cover it all, the rest of it, next week. But the, the truth worth fighting for, you'll see it in verse 5. If you just look real quick, he talks about the truth of the gospel in verse 5, and then in verse 14, he also says it again, um, the truth of the gospel. This is what he's talking about in these 14 verses as he's writing to the Galatians. The truth of the gospel. This is what is at stake. The truth of the gospel, and it's worth fighting for, and he's drawing a line in the sand. And so, if you will, I'm going to begin reading. I'm just read a couple of verses. We'll talk about it. Read a couple of verses. Talk about it, see how far we get, and um, hopefully, we'll we'll make it a little bit of waste. Here's how he starts, Galatians chapter two, beginning verse one. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Now, stop right there for a second. So he says, here's a time marker he gives. So chronologically, most uh, scholars and commentators will say, listen, of, of all the chronology in the New Testament, this is it's a mess. It's so hard to figure out exactly what Paul means. So is it 14 years from the three years that he previously mentions? Or is it 14 years from his conversion that he previously mentions? And you could go either way. This visit to Jerusalem here in chapter 2, he, he's talking about one of two visits, all right? Uh, you can pick. It, it, it really doesn't make much difference in the interpretation of the passage. He's either talking about, Luke records five visits in the book of Acts that Paul makes to Jerusalem. The first visit we already saw, it was a visit that he spent 15 days and he consults with Peter and, and he also meets with James. This visit is either Paul's second visit, which is known as the famine visit at the end of Acts 11, or it's the third visit, which is Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. I take it to be the second visit, the visit there at the end of Acts 11. If you want to take it at the Acts 15, that's okay. You are happy to uh, be wrong with Mark Kirkendall if you would like to be. But let's just say, for the sake of it, it's, it's Acts 11, and if you take Acts 15, it's all right. But Paul, he says, hey, listen, 14 years. So I'm going to take 14 years after his conversion. After this 14 years, here's what Paul's been doing. Either way, we know, listen, in this 14-year period, 14 years have passed. He's been, he says, he previously he told us, I've been virtually unknown. I've been unknown to the churches in Judea. He's been in Arabia for three years. He's been in Tarsus. He's been making tents. He's been talking about Jesus. And we don't know anything else about what Paul's been doing. But I'll tell you something. Those 14 years have been the most interesting and impactful 14 years in the history of the church. Because Acts 10 and Acts 11 record one of the most major shifts in the history of the church. We leave off Paul. He, he disappears at the end of Acts chapter 9. He reappears at the end of Acts chapter 11. And between those two times, the church goes through the most amazing shift that they, they should have known about, but it catches them off guard. And I'll tell you what happens. In Acts chapter 10, here's what happens. Peter is visiting the west coast of Israel, west coast of Judea. He's out there on the west coast, the California of Judea. He's out there, he's surfing, he's um, catching some sun, eating granola, doing what you do out on the west coast. And he has a vision. And in this vision, this picnic comes down from heaven. And this picnic has all kinds of barbecue on the picnic. And God says, hey, Peter, I want you to feast on this barbecue. And Peter says, 
Well, I can't do that. I'm kosher. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. I can't do it. And God keeps coming back to Peter and says, no, I want you to eat. I want you to eat. I want you to eat. And God has to continue to do this to Peter until Peter finally gets the point. God was preparing Peter to do something. Peter, actually, he couldn't believe God was preparing him to do. And that is this. God was preparing Peter to go to a man named Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Gentile centurion, and go and to tell Cornelius about Jesus so that Cornelius could be saved and everybody around Cornelius, and then the Spirit was going to come on him, and then Paul, Peter was going to baptize this Gentile, and Cornelius was going to become a Christian. And that had never happened in the history of the church until Acts chapter 10. Well, I can tell you as you read Luke's account, Peter's a little bit freaked out. So what he does is he goes in Acts chapter 11 to the church in Jerusalem and he begins to tell all the Jewish Christians what happened to him out when he was on the West Coast. And like we told you, you shouldn't have gone out there to California. But he recounts what happened. And he told him the gospel, and he told him the truth of Jesus. What happened when Cornelius heard it, and that he got saved? And so in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, They glorified God, and then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God orchestrated a gospel conversion amongst the Gentiles. And we don't have anything else to say except glory to God about this. Then the very next verse is, you know what happens? God's not done. That movement moves beyond the boundaries of Judea into a place called Antioch. And then it says the movement, there were Gentiles, there were these Hellenists, a great number of them began to trust in the Lord and they came to faith. And so Jerusalem sends a guy named Barnabas that they trust. He's a great man. He goes up to Antioch to see what's going on. And Barnabas, he's thrilled. I can't believe it. This is awesome. Gentiles are hearing the gospel. In Acts chapter 11, verse 25, Barnabas sees the writing on the wall and he knows that the church is in for a huge transition. In Acts chapter 11, verse 25 is when Barnabas goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul because Barnabas knows that the church is going to need a man like Paul to lead them through this next chapter, this next phase. Because this is going to be difficult for the church. And so in verse 2, Paul says to the Galatians, Hey, listen. Went to Jerusalem. I think it's there in Acts 11. Barnabas goes to get Paul. They come back to Antioch. They're there for some unspecified amount of time. There's a guy named Agabus. Agabus comes. He has a revelation, a prophecy. There's a famine. And the church says, Hey, listen, we need to send some folks to Jerusalem to relieve this famine. So the church says, hey, Paul and Barnabas, y'all go to Jerusalem because God is sending a message there. So they go, and Paul, he's not summoned by Jerusalem. He wants the Galatian church to know. Listen, God orchestrated a divine invitation, a divine reason for us to go to Jerusalem. And while I was there, I want you to be clear about this. While we were there, 
took the opportunity to gather these apostles, these Jerusalem apostles, in a private meeting to lay out the gospel because I wanted to make sure we were on the same page. He doesn't think he's in error. That's not the point of saying, making sure we were running in vain. He knows, listen, there's something about to happen. There's about to be a first missionary journey. He wants to make sure, listen, we've got to be on the same page because if this deal is divided, the church is going to be fractured moving forward. He's got to make sure, listen, I received a revelation from Jesus. You guys received a revelation from Jesus. Let's make sure we know our gospels are the same. The revelations we receive from Jesus, they're the same. And so Paul, he takes Barnabas, he sets forth his gospel. Barnabas is the witness, he knows both parties. And then he takes Titus along with him. Titus is the fruit of Paul's gospel ministry, a ministry that was independent from the, from the Jerusalem apostles. Paul's ministry, Paul's gospel came from a revelation of Jesus. The Jerusalem apostles, their ministry, their gospel came from a revelation of Jesus. Let's sync it up. Let's make sure they're the same. And that's where we are. So in verse 3, look at what he says. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, what false brothers do, not real brothers, false brothers, slipped in, spied out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul has this private meeting. He sets forth the gospel. Titus is exhibit A. Now, I am sure that is a lot of fun for Titus. Don't you think? Paul's there. Hey, Titus, come in here for a second. Guys, this is Titus, and he's a pagan Gentile. Titus, you got your sweatpants on? Great. We're going to need that in a second. And here we get to the issue. Here is the accusation being levied against Paul. I want to be clear about this. The accusation being levied against Paul is that his gospel, what he's preaching, is too easy. It's not enough. You see, the Jews, they were following Paul around. Maybe there were some that had gone with Barnabas or had come in behind Barnabas at Antioch. Maybe they'd heard about Paul. They'd been spying him out. There was this deep uneasiness, though, going on with the Jewish people, maybe some of the Jewish Christians, since Acts 10 and Acts 11, once the Gentiles began being converted, once Gentiles become uh, started coming into the church. God's people were the Jews. They always had been. That's the way it always was for centuries. We have a Bible to prove it. It's called the Old Testament. And they didn't have a New Testament yet. To be one of God's people, you have to be a Jew. 
To be a Jew, you have to be circumcised. You have to be initiated. You have to be made clean. You have to be set apart, which means you have to keep the law. That's the way. It's always been the way. What's the problem here? And here was Titus, a Gentile. He'd been a pagan. He loved barbecue. That's bad. He met Paul. He heard the gospel. He was saved. He loved Jesus. He, he was a child of God, or was he? Was he part of the church? Was he a brother? See, here's the question. Is Jesus enough? Is the gospel of grace sufficient? Is what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, is it sufficient to save sinners from the wrath of God? That's the question. The question wasn't whether Jesus died and rose again. The question wasn't whether the law of God was holy and righteous and good. The question wasn't whether the Jews were the descendants of Abraham. The question was this. Was the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient to save sinners? Sinners who are not Jews. So was this going to mean sinners apart from the law was... Was Jesus sufficient to save sinners apart from the law? Can you be saved by Jesus without having to become a Jew by fulfilling the law requirements of circumcision? Paul regarded that for keeping the law. So Jesus' sacrifice plus your ceremony, whatever it is, equals salvation. And Paul said, that's not the gospel when you do that. That's not the gospel. So imagine Titus standing there for a minute, would you? Will his personhood, will his soul be accepted into the fellowship? He's an outsider, alone, scrutinized. Is Jesus enough for Titus to be fully valued, fully loved, fully qualified as a child of God? Is Jesus enough for Titus? Let me ask you, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Paul's point was this. They were trying to say, look, Titus, is, he needed more. I mean, it's second class here, Titus is. But Paul says, look, there's no second class Christians. How can there be? Every Christian is saved exactly the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There can be no discrimination in the church. So let's talk about this for a second. 
can't exclude people from salvation. So we know this, so let's make it simple. So can't exclude people from salvation based on race, gender, class, age, anything else like that. But let, let, let's bring it to another place. You can't exclude people from salvation based upon, let's call it relative righteousness. Like we can't rank sins and say, well, if somebody's struggling with pride and lust, well, that's okay. I mean, that's, I mean, who, who doesn't struggle with that, right? I mean, but if somebody battles with depression or somebody's marriage is falling apart or tempted with homosexuality or addicted to drugs, I mean, they better keep that quiet, right? I mean, because, I mean, people know they don't really belong in the church if they struggle with those things, Right? Titus is this perfect example. There's no way anybody could have been more different from the apostles than Titus was. An uncircumcised Gentile. Standing there with the Jewish apostles. And yet he stood before them as a man who had been saved by the cross in an empty tomb, and God accepted him solely on the basis of what Jesus had done for him, the same way he had accepted the apostles. Justification comes by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And that's what Paul is saying. You can't circumcise this man. You can't add to anything. In verse 5, he's arguing. He's, he's drawing the line in the sand. We cannot yield to this. The truth of the gospel is at stake. There's people that hang around the church. They don't like freedom. They don't trust you with it. And the gospel keeps the Christian free. He says, we don't yield for it for a moment. To the, the translation, literally, for an hour, he said, because the truth of the gospel needs to be preserved. So there's two arguments against the gospel. Always have been. One says, listen, if you, if you preach the gospel, you don't preach the law, people, they, they're just going to take advantage of it. I mean, how are people going to be moral if you don't add some moral requirements? I mean, if you don't tell them to be moral, I mean, if you just say by grace alone, through faith alone, and you, and you, don't, if you, don't, if you don't scare them with, with hell and, 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 and guilt and, and damnation, listen, they're not going to fly right. They're not going to look like they're supposed to. They're not going to do the things they're supposed to. They're going to do what we want them to do. They're going to do wrong things. The other argument says, listen, the law is holy and it's, and it's divine. How 
has been always. Teach the law. Tell people to do the law. Forgetting that you can't. I'm going to read a quote to you, but I I want to tell you about the quote I'm going to read. I'm going to read this quote, and, and I'm going to read it, and, and, if, and you'd think that it came from a 20-year-old guy who's a pastor of an emergent church who wears skinny jeans and has wild hair and rebels against his parents and has earrings and tattoos. Rides a motorcycle or a moped, probably, and is vegan. That, that's who you're going to think this quote comes from. But it's not. The, the quote I'm about to read comes from a man who's passed away. He's a 20th century preacher named Martin Lloyd Jones. He's British, preached in London. He's a staunch Calvinist with a Puritan heart, which means he would have fit in better in the 18th century than the 20th. He was no fun at dinner parties. For the last 12 years of his life, from his pulpit at the historic Westminster Chapel, he preached through Romans, line by line, for 12 years. I'm sorry, for 12 years. He preached through Romans, line by line. He was not casual or loose with his exposition. He was careful and loved God's Word. Conservative. No one ever accused Lloyd-Jones of being a liberal. And in his comments on Romans chapter 6, his commentary published after his death, you'll find this. This is what he says about the risk of preaching grace, how it should be preached, about what's at stake, about the risk, and how you know if you've communicated grace rightly. That's what Lloyd-Jones says. First of all, let me make a comment, to me a very important and vital comment. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and might misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this. 
that because you're saved by grace alone, and it does not matter at all what you do, you can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to this misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. If a man preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. If a man's preaching is, if you want to be a Christian and if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins. You must take up good works. If you do so regularly and constantly and do not fall, fail to keep at it, you will make yourself a Christian. You'll reconcile yourself to God and then you'll get to go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Nobody would say to such a man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because the man's whole emphasis is just this, that if you go on sinning, you're certain to be damned. And if you only stop sinning, can you save yourselves? So that misunderstanding could never arise. Nobody's ever brought this charge against the church of Rome. But it was brought frequently against Martin Luther. Indeed, that was precisely what the Church of Rome said about the preaching of Martin Luther. They said, this man, who was a priest, has changed the doctrine in order to justify his own marriage and his own lust and so on. This man, they said, is antinomian, and that is heresy. That is the very charge they brought against him. It is also brought against George Whitfield 200 years ago. It is the charge that formal dead Christianity, if there is such a thing, has always brought against this startling, staggering message that God justifies the ungodly. That is my comment, and it is very important comment for preachers. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you'd better examine your sermons again, and you'd better make sure that you're really preaching the salvation that's offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, and to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. There is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. That's grace. That's what they accused Paul of. See, the Judaizers wanted, they were demanding. What they wanted was somebody like Titus. They, they wanted him, they needed him to become holy. They needed him to be set apart. He needed to get clean and circumcision was the way. Titus, listen, we're glad you found religion. We're glad you found Jesus. Now let's get you cleaned up. Let's finish this thing up. If, if, if you're not careful, if we're not careful, that's what we're tempted to do. That's what we're tempted to think about others what we're tempted to think about ourselves, isn't it? Got to get cleaned up. Got to get cleaned up. But listen, Titus didn't need to be circumcised. He did not need a ceremony to cleanse him. He did not need to be cleaned up so that he could come into the church and eat at the table. He was already clean. He was already spotless. The righteousness he needed, he had already been given. He was clothed in Jesus' righteousness. His holiness was both a gift and a process. Titus was born again. 
He received a new nature that was already holy, already sanctified. And the process of his sanctification is now the ongoing unveiling of the gift of holiness and righteousness of who he is and who he's becoming. Titus did not need to be circumcised to become something that he wasn't. He already was. He was already circumcised in his heart, made clean, holy, and acceptable. The moment he trusted Christ, he no longer was who he used to be. And he was now who he never thought he could be, holy and righteous. We do not change in order to become godly. We are changed because we already are godly. You are in Christ if you're a believer. Three things happened to Titus the moment he trusted Christ. Three things, by the way, happened to you the moment you trusted Christ simultaneously. Three things. One was legal, one was relational, and one happened inside of you. The legal change was that you went from being guilty before God, an infinitely holy God, to being fully forgiven. A legal declaration. Guilty to being forgiven. Done. Second was a relational change from being a condemned slave to sin to being an adopted child of the high king. Paul writes, you've received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's who you are. And then something happened inside of you. A change. Something in the deepest internal part of you. You went from being a child of wrath to being a partaker of the divine nature. The old self, the old Titus, it got offset. Not fully removed. But a new self, a new nature was born. A new condition a new heart with new affections, new desires, indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God. And if you've trusted Christ, that's your story. And that's what Paul's fighting for. That's the line in the sand. Blaise Pascal said, The law demands what it cannot give. It demands what it cannot give. But grace gives all that it demands. We are no longer governed by external lists of moral duties. We are internally empowered 
to live out a union with Christ. We're in Christ. We've been born again. We have hearts that have been circumcised, made clean. The law is internally implanted. The Holy Spirit empowers the believer. Grace enables and motivates far beyond what the law is ever capable to do. We can love it now. We can love the law. Listen, if, you, if you're here this morning and you think, man, listen, okay, I believed in Jesus and now I'm trying to, I'm trying to clean up, trying to, trying to make myself clean. And you don't fully understand what grace has done. Grace has cleansed you. That's the truth of the gospel. You are no longer what you were. And you are now what you never even dared or hoped that you could be. In Christ. And dwelt. Empowered by the Spirit. To live out this. Amazing. Glorious. And radical. New reality. Of what it means to be born again. In Christ. It's the truth of the gospel. It's what Paul's fighting for. It's the line in the sand. That's why Martin Luther, what's, it, what's at stake? How grave's the issue? That's why Luther will say, the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and the command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it's only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God's a liar, or He's not lived up to His promises. Therefore our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we're striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God. We lose Christ. We lose all the promises. We lose faith. We lose righteousness. We lose eternal life. So with Paul, Draw the line in the sand. Here we stand. Do no other. For by grace we are saved through faith in Christ. If you've never come 
believe that. This morning, God is drawing you to his son, Jesus. I invite you with a heart of faith to say yes to him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would do what only you can do. And that is that while we are still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To set us free. And so this morning, Father, that you would grant faith to sinners, to believe, to trust in your Son. To know this morning what it is to be made new. By your grace, through faith in Christ. Father, not what they are doing or have done or can do. But Father, what you would do are doing in them through Jesus. So Father, grant them a heart of faith to say, yes, I believe. And be born again. Father, we thank you for the, for the council 2,000 years ago that took place in Jerusalem with Paul and Peter and James and John and the line drawn in the sand and the truth of the gospel preserved. And Father, that you've preserved it all these years. Pray you draw us afresh this morning to the beauty of your grace and the beauty of your son we ask this the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit Amen Thanks again for listening to the podcast today we hope that you were blessed and encouraged and if you have any questions or comments we want you to let us know simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast